they're not vaccines and that, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the right to die cases that came out of Oregon and, and, uh, um, Washington yeah, governor, State. governor Booth Gardner, if yeah, I'm not mistaken, was integral to that fight. Right. And, and the outcome in the Supreme court was ultimately that you could not, you could not force someone to take a treatment, even if it were life-saving. In other words, the Supreme court said, we don't even belong here, you know, but you cannot force someone to take a life-saving treatment. And so if these, these vaccines that aren't, if it turns out they're a treatment, legally speaking, that means that even if you are, even if you could show that they saved a life and I'm with you, I, I don't believe that's been shown. In fact, I know it hasn't, but you know, that's a different issue, but, um, that you can't mandate a life saving therapy on someone under Supreme court precedent. So if these aren't, if these are gene therapies, then you're, you know, you've taken paternalism to a level now We the, the underlying premise would be the government can controls your body and you're getting your immune system on a license agreement. Hey folks, welcome to the dark horse podcast. This is going to be a very special episode. I have the distinct pleasure and honor of sitting today with John Bose, Dale Saran and Olivia Degenkolb. I'm going to allow them to tell you who they are and what role they play and to deliver a disclaimer that I know they must in order to protect themselves from uh, forces that would rather that they not show up and speak publicly about what they have seen. Um, why don't we start with you, John? Well, thank you for having me on, Brad. It's really a privilege to be here uh, and an honor. Uh, my name is John Bose. I'm a first lieutenant in the United States Air Force. And I'm an F-16 student pilot who was grounded over the COVID-19 vaccine mandates. And I want to make it clear that, uh, like Brett said, I do have a disclaimer, and that is that I'm representing myself and my thoughts and opinions expressed here are purely my own, and I don't represent the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. All right. Dale? Uh, my name is Dale Saran. I'm an attorney. I'm a retired Marine major. Uh, I don't need any disclaimers because the Marine Corps doesn't pay my salary anymore. But uh, my opinions are my own, as always. And Olivia. Olivia Degenkolb, active duty naval officer for 20 years now. Um, as John mentioned, the thoughts and opinions are my own. I do not represent the Department of Defense or the Department of the Navy. Excellent. So what brings us together is a shared battle over vaccine mandates. They're not the only mandates, but they're clearly the central ones here. And I think what many Americans and many in the West do not understand is that although mandates have largely been lifted across much of the civilian world, they are still quite active in the military. Now, I don't know the full details of that. I'm aware that courts have enjoined mandates in certain uh, branches of the armed forces and not in others. Um, before we get to the details of that and the details of what you each have experienced, what follows is a very special episode of Dark Horse. It's the first in a series in which I talk to military whistleblowers about the mandates that they still face. They are bold for coming forward. And this kind of programming is only possible because we have equally bold sponsors. We're grateful to them and we hope that you will consider supporting them as well. Our first brave sponsor for this episode is Bubs Naturals. Bubs Naturals sells three products that are becoming ever more popular in fitness and outdoor exploration circles, collagen protein, MCT oil, and apple cider vinegar gummies. Many companies are selling similar products, but Bubs is different. 
Here's how. The products themselves are of the highest quality, carefully and sustainably sourced. And Bubs is a company with a conscience. Bubs is named for former Navy SEAL Glenn Bub Doherty, who was great friends with people from all walks of life, including one of the founders of Bubs Naturals. For 364 days a year, 10% of all profits go to charities in Glenn's honor. And on Veterans Day, that number is 100%. Bubs Naturals encapsulates Glenn's enthusiasm for life, self-improvement, and helping others with the motto, feel great, do good. Try Bub's Natural Collagen Protein, which is truly unflavored and soluble, unlike some of the collagen available from other sources. It's got just one ingredient, which is critical to joint and gut health and muscle recovery. And you can add it to anything, a glass of water, a smoothie, a cup of coffee. And Bub's Natural's Collagen Protein is sustainably sourced from grass-fed and pasture-raised cows in southern Brazil, very far from the Amazon. And the MCT oil powder dissolves fast in coffee, for instance, providing a healthy, sustained mental boost. Both the collagen protein and MCT oil are very easy to add to any drink and help with both mental focus and muscle and joint wellness and recovery. And the apple cider vinegar gummies are, in a word, irresistible. Bub's Naturals aspires to these words, die young as late as possible. Go to bubsnaturals.com slash darkhorse for 20% off your order. That's B-U-B-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash darkhorse. Our second courageous sponsor is American Hartford Gold. Inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. We all feel it at the grocery store and the fuel pump. Interest rates are soaring. Retirement accounts are in real danger. If you want to protect your family's financial future, you should consider that people have been putting wealth into precious metals for thousands of years. The more uncertain access to other stores of value gets, the more precious precious metals are likely to become. Call American Hartford Gold to see how easy it is to get started. They can show you how to protect your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver composed of actual atoms rather than zeros. All it takes to get started is a short phone call, and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. Call them now. They will give you a percentage of your first qualifying order back in free silver. Call American Hartford Gold at 866-828-1117. That's 866 828 one 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 seven, or text Dark Horse to nine nine eight eight nine nine. Again, that's eight six six eight two eight one 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 seven, or text Dark Horse to nine nine eight eight nine nine. Our final fearless sponsor is Eight Sleep. Sleep is necessary, and good sleep is a game changer. Without good sleep, we are condemned to be less healthy and less productive. But despite the importance of good sleep, more than thirty percent of Americans struggle to get it and temperature is one of the main reasons. It is well known that individuals in couples who sleep together often have different optimal sleep temperatures. Eight Sleep allows fine-tuned temperature regulation for both people. Having a cool room and a warm bed is a luxury that Eight Sleep makes easy to obtain, or a warm room with a cool bed. You schedule your temperature preferences for your side of the bed in advance, and if you want to tweak it during the night, that's easy too. The Pod Pro cover by HSleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110. 
The temperature of the cover adjusts each side of the bed based on sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, dynamically creating the optimal sleep environment for you. Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster and reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and they get more restful sleep overall. And with 30% more deep restorative sleep on average, they are likely to benefit from faster physical recovery, improved hormone regulation, and increased mental clarity. Finally, the wake-up feature, which can signal you with temperature change and or slight chest-level vibrations, isn't jarring at all. It's much gentler than any standard alarm. Heather and I were both skeptical about the value of a technologically enhanced mattress, but we are now totally convinced. We are surprised at how much we appreciate this bed when we are home and how much we miss it when we are away. Go to 8sleep.com darkhorse to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. 8sleep ships to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. That's 8sleep.com darkhorse. I did want to say a word about why Dale is here. Dale is functioning as an attorney in this context, and he brings not only uh, experience with the law, but experience with past military mandates over vaccines, as I understand it, anthrax being uh, central in, in that earlier fight. And so that battle over the anthrax vaccine actually sheds a great deal of light on the current battle over the COVID-19 vaccines that most of us are just simply unaware of. So, uh, Dale, I'm glad to have you here to provide um, that context and also to provide insight on the various nuances of the law that obviously surround the question of whether mandates are legitimate. Um, do you want to say something about the anthrax battle, how it ended up, where it stands now? Uh, so we sure. have that context. I, I think it's, a, and thank you, uh, Brett, for having me on. Yeah, this is a, have been a, uh, these mandates, I think it's important just for a little historical context to kind of understand how we got here, is that the, the anthrax vaccine was really, uh, well, first of all, it was the first EUA vaccine. So now everybody knows what EUA means, emergency use authorized product. But um, uh, the first one of those was actually the anthrax vaccine back in 2004. But all of this really begins, um, uh, at least in the recent history, in with the Gulf War. And uh, the DOD, you know, I don't need to tell you about the WMDs, and, and we probably don't need to, to cover that history too much. But the DOD's view was that um, it should have the authority to inject uh, military members with prophylaxis, uh, vaccines, give them drugs, a whole bunch of stuff. And, uh, that really began in the Gulf war and everything that's happened since then has just been a, a really a continuous march. And it, it happens to track my career. I was commissioned in 1991 as an officer and I didn't really know about it, but the Gulf war vets that I, you know, some of the guys I flew with certainly had stories about, you know, these, uh, variety of products but gulf war illness which i think you know those of us old enough to remember that are familiar with out of the seven hundred thousand or so uh service members who served in gulf war one the persian gulf war about a hundred thousand reported some kind of symptoms that that came to be known as gulf war syndrome and that really led to um, eventually to the EUA statute and all of this, but prohibitions on the Department of Defense's 
use of unlicensed products uh, in operations to protect service members. And where we are now is really just uh, the, the end state of that of that march, to be honest with you. Um, well, there's a lot I want to know about that. I followed for quite some time the the story of Gulf War Syndrome. I was absolutely struck by, I guess I probably would not at the time have called it gaslighting, but I certainly would now, the idea that yes. many people who served in Iraq were suffering from a recognizable syndrome and um, the military and, and the federal government was simply pretending that it was in their heads. And um, that shocked me. I remember um, as a scientifically minded person thinking very carefully about what might uh, have caused the syndrome uh, at the point that I, I stopped paying attention to the story. I thought the leading hypothesis was depleted uranium rounds, which were strewn around the battlefield. And um, my understanding now is that that probably was not uh, the the cause and that, in fact, there was reason to suspect the anthrax vaccine, which was experimental. I'm, I'm learning from you now. It was literally the first emergency use authorized uh, medical product. It, it sure was. It was the first one granted that status, but that that came later in the context of the litigation over the legality of that program in, in 2003. I was a young judge advocate in 99. Uh, I'd been a pilot and then uh, left that, uh, got into a program that, that turned me into a lawyer, a military lawyer. Mm -hmm. And um, that uh, my first cases, among my first cases in Okinawa, Japan, were about a dozen or so uh, Marines and a sailor who had refused the anthrax vaccine. And I think uh, having been a prior military officer, I assumed because my command sort of put in my head that these guys were just malcontents and you know, non-hackers, and they didn't—they—they they were just looking for an excuse. These were people who were otherwise. This was their out, and um, uh, I quickly was disabused of that notion uh, after talking to my clients and some of the folks they were involved with. I, I found out quite quickly that that the program was illegal. That it was an illegal order, which is kind of a strange thing to stumble onto as a brand new lawyer. Uh, strange thing indeed, and I must say. Um... I'm heartened to see people like all three of you fighting this battle. I feel that it is a battle that I'm fighting and I'm meeting patriots of every conceivable stripe um, who have all realized that something very serious is afoot. And I think the, the quickest route to that recognition is the idea that we are looking at orders that any reasonable person can determine are immoral. And the fact is, immoral orders have a special status. For me, that status is codified by Nuremberg. And the idea that the world, in the aftermath of the Holocaust and World War II, it spent a great deal of effort figuring out what one was supposed to do at the point they had been ordered to do something obviously immoral. And the answer is you are supposed to reject the order. So this is a, uh, a matter that stands above the chain of command. In fact, it is a check on the chain of command. Now, um, the modern context is clearly very different. But any time 
Nuremberg is in play, I believe it's an all hands on deck moment, right? If, if Nuremberg is in jeopardy, if we're going to forget those lessons, then we are in danger of a new tragedy of history, which undoubtedly will not look like any of the previous versions. But we, we simply do not want to allow, we cannot allow anything to be added to the list of great tragedies. And this is our warning sign. So um, interesting that you as a young lawyer encountered uh, immoral orders, uh, and that must have been um, quite bewildering to be dealing with, you know, effectively the top legal concern uh, at the early part of your career. Yeah, um, and I think the other interesting thing was that the research quickly led me to conclude that, um, and this this may <laughs> this may bum you out, in the aftermath of Nuremberg, um, but it's been a this has been constant um, nonstop for for all that we prosecuted the folks at Nuremberg. Um, you know, there was uh, three of the charges against some of the uh, doctors were dropped. They actually uh, were able to de- defend themselves on some of the charges. Um, the idea is that Nuremberg was based on the idea of international common law. And so the, the Allied forces were prosecuting the Germans and said this was clearly outside the pale, beyond the pale. And some of the German doctors who were like, wait a minute, you guys have been doing this the whole time. There is no international common law. You know, the British have been doing this at Port and Down. You've been experimenting on your own troops. And of course, we had been flashing. We'd been doing, uh, you know, there were the atomic veterans. And then, of course, you fast forward into Korea and post, you know, 52 to 64, I think it was the MK Ultra program, the joint army, CIA, you know, get unwittingly giving them um, uh, hallucinogens. And um, there was a Senate report done during the Gulf War um, when Congress really got involved and started holding some hearings in the mid-90s. There's a Senate print, uh, 103-97, and it's called the Rockefeller Report name for the senator but it's it's called something like 50 years of you know uh 50 years of experiments on veterans or something like that and it was a look and it had testimony from all these world war ii veterans who had who had been um uh silenced and that's part of the problem with the military is and john and olivia can certainly talk to this is you know the military can make you sign documents classify things and say you can't talk about this and so the very people who are being harmed and having you know what amounts to war crimes conducted on them uh the man break tests with mustard gas i mean there's terrible things documented in there but that's been non-stop and you, and you can take that right through agent orange um you know all the way up through then the gulf war so so I, I hate to say it i mean as much as we point to nuremberg and the u.s likes to point fingers at other countries our our record of uh you know, living up to those ideals has been has been just about non-existent. About you know. all right. Um, well, I accept what you say, and I know uh, a good deal about several of the subjects you mentioned. So I I would agree that this is hardly the unique new violation. On the other hand, there's obviously something about the scale of this violation that is, I would argue, unprecedented, because not only is it being uh, inflicted upon members of the military, it's being inflicted simultaneously across the civilian population and not just in the U.S. either. This has been a global effort. And so um, something unprecedented is taking place here, but we are uh, wise to be reminded of the long history of uh, 
explorations of uh, how effective Nuremberg really is as a uh, as a policy. So let's um, let's bring Olivia and John into this. Olivia, do you want to start by um, telling us your story, what's happened to you, and um, how it fits into uh, the context of your career and your life? Sure, absolutely. So I went to boot camp right after 9-11. Um, obviously joined the military to support and defend the Constitution. Um, I truly love my country in the American way. I was prior enlisted, selected for the Seaman to Admiral program, which is an enlisted to officer commissioning program. I uh, was a naval flight officer on E-2s and subsequently selected for a naval, or I'm sorry, not naval flight officer, foreign area officer, which is effectively international relations. I was an Olmsted scholar, so studied in Beijing for two years and was recently selected as the assistant naval attache designate to Beijing. Um, I was supposed to go to Beijing. I actually went, you know, did language training, went through um, training and, you know, briefed with people, just ensured that I was ready to represent the United States abroad. And prior to the Department of Defense mandates being announced, um, I was told, hey, we've heard a rumor that there might be these mandates coming. And so we're going to put you on operational hold. You and your family aren't allowed to go anywhere. At the time, I had significant medical concerns. Um, I had concerns both about fertility. If you read the um, Pfizer, or I guess the community package insert, it specifically addresses male fertility, carcinogenicity, you know, genotoxicity. Um, it, it states, actually, let me read this to you. It's just too funny. It states, um, this is Pfizer's uh, package insert. It says, in a developmental toxicity study in rats with community, there was no vaccine-related effects on female fertility, end quote. Um, I don't know about you, but, you know, as someone who is a firm believer in science, my background's in nuclear engineering and engineering physics, I, I'm just not comfortable um, putting the balance of my fertility on a couple rats, you know? <laughs> so... Well, you ain't kidding. Um, <laughs> I am going to restrain myself from uh, discussing here the particular issues with the rodents that are used for these studies. But let me just say that uh, when I was a graduate student, I, I'm an evolutionary biologist. When I was a graduate student, I was studying what I thought was just an interesting evolutionary question, which is why do we grow feeble and inefficient with age? Why do we uh, senesce? And what I stumbled onto was that we, the way we breed rodents for uh, scientific tests actually results in them becoming extremely robust to toxic substances. Hmm. Uh, and this is a problem that, as far as I know, has never been corrected. So the, the mice are, in fact, biased to make dangerous substances look much safer than they actually are. So even wow. if these rats were excellent models, you would be right to be hesitant. But given what these mice and rats actually are, your hesitancy is uh, much more than justified. Thanks Further, I would say terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. And the fact that it has not been addressed is is mind boggling to me. I thought when I found this this uh, problem that science would rush to correct it because it was blinding us. It was, in fact, causing us to believe things were true that were not because these animals were misleading. Um, and when 
instead my colleagues simply pretended the problem didn't exist it it woke me up to um what has gone wrong in uh, in science in academia in the regulation of uh, drug safety all of these things but i would also say that there is evidence actually of the accumulation of lipid nanoparticles in reproductive tissue in rats mm -hmm. also and so the whole idea that uh, what we've learned from rats tells us that this would be safe for women's fertility is nonsense. There's reason to wonder about its effect on fertility. And at best, what we can say is we don't know, right? Which is not all that comforting. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I had those concerns and I brought them up to my chain of command and to my doctor. Uh, the doctor kind of blew me off and you know, said, hey, this is a non-issue. At the time, there were a lot of people seeking medical exemptions and, you know, speaking to their doctors about concerns they had with the mRNA vaccine specifically. And um, so it took a while to get an appointment. And in that time frame, I, I learned that, you know, it was illegal to mandate emergency use authorized products and that the vaccines that were available that were being given not only to the U.S. military, but to the American people were all emergency use authorized products. Uh, so I started to notify my chain of command. Um, I actually wrote a point paper about my concerns and sent it up to the Pentagon back in October. <laughs> I, I did everything I could to, you know, kind of sound the alarm and over time started meeting other like-minded people who were similarly situated, you know, also unvaccinated and concerned. Um, I filed a religious accommodation with the help of a lot of those people. Uh, I was learning, you know, the process for a religious accommodation along with everyone else, I, I think, you know, prior to that, I'd known one person who'd submitted a religious accommodation in 20 years of service. Um, so being able to talk to other people who were also researching this topic was incredibly helpful. Um, and, you know, as a group over time, we've just realized more and more challenges that are associated with these vaccines. A, they're emergency use authorized, so you can't mandate them under Title 21 and for military Title 10. Um, for religious accommodations, there seem to be blanket disapprovals within the service, which obviously, you know, is unconstitutional. Um, for me, when when the president mandated, or I guess not mandated, but um, pushed out executive order, I believe it was 14043, mandating civilians, government civilian employees to take the vaccine. That was honestly when, for me, I had a real real problem with um, problem of conscience. It effectively said, look, you know, because of the successes we've had with, and I'm paraphrasing here, you've got to pull up the actual executive order, but because of the successes we've had with uh, mandating COVID guidance in agencies, and at the time the DOD, the military specifically, was the only agency that was mandating the COVID vaccine, we are going to require this of the civilian population. At that point, I felt that uh, the military's acquiescence to taking these emergency use authorized COVID-19 vaccines had resulted in them being rolled out on the civilian population, which was clearly unconstitutional. And that for me was a huge crisis of conscience. Um, it was terrifying. And again, it was actually the basis of my religious accommodation, which under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, most people don't know this, but you can file for religious beliefs, moral conscience or moral principles, and also your conscience. So that was 
yeah, just incredibly troubling. And since then, um, there are you know over 80,000 other service members that are in the same situation that are looking at potentially being kicked out. Uh, many of us have spoken to our leadership about our concerns with the legality, with the lack of constitutionality, um, you know, with the discrimination, how religious personnel and people with medical issues are being disproportionately impacted. And honestly, they're falling on deaf ears. So, you know, whether whether we file a religious accommodation or speak to the chain of command or file an a, a equal opportunity complaint or file an, an inspector general complaint, most of these aren't being resolved in a satisfactory manner. And people have given us answers from, hey, there's nothing to see here to, yes, it looks like there is a violation of law, but because it's currently being adjudicated in courts, there's nothing we can do. So we're going to continue to violate your rights, which obviously is unacceptable. (laughs) So there are many uh, themes in there I want to make sure that we cover. Um, I do want to ask you about the basis of the religious objection. I can think of several, um, but there are obviously important questions here because religious freedoms are uh, called out specifically in our Constitution, um, and for good reason. I also want to talk about the... So for me, there are certain things about the story of the COVID treatments... um, including these so-called vaccines, which really do not deserve that term. But nonetheless, there's certain things about the way this has transpired that tell me that we are not dealing with a normal story in which those who are dictating policy are grappling with an understandably difficult issue and they're making some errors, but nonetheless, they're doing the best they can. We know that's not the case because, among other things, we know that the risks of COVID go spectacularly down the younger you are and the healthier you are. And yet these policies are persistently indifferent to your own ability to fend off this disease, um, which goes specifically then in the case of the military mandates to questions of readiness, which is the greater cost to readiness vaccinating healthy people and exposing them to the risks of these experimental treatments, uh, sidelining people who have been trained to do important jobs that are involved in our readiness because they have reasons not to want to take these so-called vaccines. The fact that the policy appears to be vaccinate um, at all costs is inconsistent with the military's mission, and I think obviously so. Um, And, you know, I think your story uh, speaks to that. So I don't know which of those issues you want to start with or uh, if somebody John's else wants probably to the expert on the, on the readiness issue. I think he's really the one who's been tracking a, a good deal of those numbers. Haven't you, John? Yeah, John, you want to jump in? I have. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So the national security issue and the readiness issue is, uh, I think one of the more serious ones that kind of almost exists outside of, of the argument about whether these vaccines are good or bad or not, and like like you've said, Brett, is that uh, it seems to be inconsistent with the desire of the military to have a competent, ready force. And so uh, just to paint a picture of where we stand right now this year in terms of readiness, uh, it's not looking very good. The Army missed its recruiting goal by 15% in this fiscal year, 22, uh, and then Heritage Foundation recently came out saying that uh, the military's 
recruiting this year, fiscal year 22, is the worst it's been since the all-volunteer force began in 1973. And I'm sure you know that's just after Vietnam. The military wasn't a very popular organization then. So our, our recruiting is, is really hurting. And, and the DMDC data, which is the uh, Defense Manpower Data Center, has, has put out the numbers on on our military total force composition. And if you look at that data closely, you realize that people are leaving in mass after the vaccine mandates came down. So there's a case to say that it's almost directly related to this. In, in April of 2022, we lost 10,000 people in a single month, total uf- uniform service personnel in the active guard and reserve. Uh, that's the most people in a single month that we've lost in over 10 years. Uh, so people, people are running for the door already. Uh, and when you look at the fact that there are 80,000 plus unvaccinated service members, uh, we already can't afford to lose anyone. Uh, and, and now we're saying that we want to discharge 80,000 individuals because they won't take a vaccine that our own CDC says is meaningfully not important anymore. They've, they've released guidance that says the vaccinated and unvaccinated should be treated the same. Uh, and so from that perspective, and especially these tumultuous times this year, uh, I think it's I think it's a dangerous policy to uh, adopt this idea that we need to get rid of any person who doesn't want the vaccine, or we need to have 100% vaccination. Because from from a readiness perspective, um, that's extremely detrimental to our ability to defend our nation. And perhaps in 2020, when COVID was still thought to be extremely serious, that maybe you can make a case for that. But now, uh, with the data about vaccine injuries and everything else. Um, th- th- there's, there's, I think, absolutely no case to say that we, we need to get rid of these individuals or coerce them into taking a vaccine that they don't want to take, because that's contrary to the, the absolute foundation of our country and the Constitution and the foundation of our military. Yes, you, uh, you point to a third uh, ish readiness issue that I hadn't considered, which is that obviously bullying people into taking these um, I know they're supposed to be safe and effective, but these obviously unsafe and ineffective so-called vaccines um, is going to drive certain people who might otherwise uh, sign up to do something else. So we are taking highly competent people like yourself and grounding them after investing a great deal in training you to to defend the country. Um, We are driving people who might sign up for such a job to to pick another career. And frankly, the military's own data on adverse events says that we're injuring people who would otherwise have been able to fight on our behalf. So that's three different ways that we are harming readiness here. And the question really is, why would we ever harm readiness? We would need a very good reason to do that, given the fundamental role that the military plays in keeping the nation free and making room for a society that is, frankly, the fairest one that has ever existed. And, and you know, really, I think it, it, it makes sense to think of the founders of the United States as having not only founded a great country, but having invented the West This is the fairest system. Even if you like someone else's version of it better, it still started here and defending it is fundamental. So the idea that something is allowing us to cripple our own readiness uh, is another, you know, in addition to Nuremberg, sets off alarm bells for me, right? Is that even well-intentioned or is, has something gotten into our system that is unhooking our readiness because it doesn't really want us ready? 
Brett, you know, there's an interesting, I, I said when this first started, I got a lot of calls because people knew my history with the issue, but um, one of the first things people asked me, and, and it included people, you know, like John and Olivia and a, a lot of military members, particularly pilots, uh, and I've got some theories about why that is, but um, uh, people all ask me the same thing. They're like, what, like, what is possibly going on? And, it, and it's related to what you talked about with risk stratification, where, you know, um, John, for example, is an F-16 pilot. And, uh, you know, the idea that, well, COVID's a threat, you know, but um, John's on his own oxygen when he's flying. You know, he's... <laughs> Right. So, so the idea, you know, it's not like he's got the air conditioner vents turned up, you know, and this is it's so the idea that like we've got to get all these people who are at if you did by risk stratification, both by age, health and then by just even potential threat to them, like in their day to day workings as a pilot, you know, a lot of the pilots that we have in this group that, you know, live and, and John both know a lot of the other folks in this group. Um, you know, you're on your own oxygen. You're with, I mean, it's, I don't know, like all of the possible justifications for doing it are it largely turn out to be just nonsense. And so you have to, to your point, you have to start asking yourself, what, what's really behind this? And I said that whether it was intentional or not, it perfectly, uh, split the force into those who would bend the knee and those who wouldn't. And, uh, you know, I don't know what, you can, people can draw whatever conclusions they want from that, but, but that's in essence what the mandate has done. Well, I'll go one step further. Um, my argument has been that there are two violations of Nuremberg here. One of them is about informed consent. And obviously we are not well informed, nor are we being asked for our consent. We are being mandated uh, to take these things. And the military uh, is still being mandated, even when the rest of us have gotten a reprieve. Um, but the other violation uh, has to do with the question of immoral orders that we talked about earlier. But I would point out that if you have a policy that delivers an immoral order and then you fire the people who refuse to take it, you build a force that is much more likely to accept immoral orders in the future. And the question is, I mean, look, at you. I think you said it very carefully, Dale, and I agree with you. I freely admit I do not know what's going on. I do know that this looks like something that is almost impossible to explain as a matter of incompetence or being misinformed, right? Were it a matter of incompetence or being misinformed, as the system woke up to things like the adverse event signal, the policy would get better. You would expect... Um, there to be a lot of uh, covering one's ass and all of that. But nonetheless, the policy would change in the direction of reason. We would stop mandating these things for young, healthy people for whom the risk of the vaccine is actually greater than the risk of COVID. Um, and the fact that that doesn't happen, um, what I've said before is that we have been left with a policy that is actually the, it's not unreasonable. It is the inverse of a reasonable policy. If you did the opposite of what it asked you to do, you'd be far better off. And it's hard to explain that pattern by anything other than some form of sabotage. Now, again, am I alleging that there's a saboteur? I don't know. 
I, I, I'm not alleging it. I don't know that there is one, but I do know that the pattern matches what a saboteur would do. One thing a saboteur would do is they would screw with our readiness. Another thing it would do is it would try to make a compliant force that didn't ask a lot of questions, right? And so, you know, how many of these data points do we need before we say, look, we admit we don't know what's happening, but we do know it's, um, it is tantamount to being attacked by an adversary that does not have an interest in our long-term well-being, right? It is right. doing what that adversary would do. Maybe there's no adversary, but it is doing what an adversary would do. Yeah, there's a point, you know, oh, Brad, uh, Brad, you make a, you in, make a good in point the law, there, there's much. a point where, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say there's a point in the law where um, mal you can arrive at uh, the functional equivalent of malice through stupidity. You know, if you run me off the road because you didn't, you, you're completely incompetent with your car, uh, it, it really, um, to my family and my estate, it won't matter. I'm dead either way. And the only difference will be what level of, you know, uh, criminal incompetence we have, you know, you can be criminally incompetent, you can be criminally negligent, you know, so it, at some point, stupidity can become the functional equivalent of malice or incompetence can be the functional equivalent of malice. And, but I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't see incompetence here because what I see is, uh, you know, now I'm in three, three different cases with this and I, I help on others, but the, the beast reacts and, even as the orders change to your point, Brett, you know, you're saying we would see some competence, we would think, or you would see some changes. You see what's really interesting is you see some of the changes in print, but never is there a, a, a retraction or a, or, or, or go back from the position. In other words, the DOD, the CDC, the FDA will put things out that suggest, yes, we recognize things are changing, but nothing, no mandate stops. It's almost it's it's impossible for them to ever admit ah, maybe this was a bad idea. Well, no, I, I'm I'm going to push back a little bit. If you imagined that you had incompetent authorities who were interested in our military readiness and thought that they were serving that interest by mandating these vaccines so that COVID didn't render us uh, unprepared, then you would expect upon the discovery that young people are better off fending off the disease naturally than receiving one of these vaccines, which doesn't prevent contraction, doesn't prevent transmission, and carries its own risk. You would expect, even if this cover story was garbage, you would expect a shift in policy that would increase our readiness from the bad policy that was delivered in the beginning. The fact that age stratification doesn't show up tells us whatever it is, is at the very least completely indifferent to our readiness. Right. Right. You, the right. point, it doesn't so your care point if we're ready at with, best, or maybe it wants us unready. Ahead, to your John. point on that, Brett, with, with uh, the, the idea of, you know, I can't attest as a service member to any sort of conspiracy or anything like that. It's, it's, it's not my place, nor do I really know with any certainty. But uh, at, at the very least, from the ground level up in, in most leadership stratification all the way up to the, the general officer level, um, you know, I think the general sentiment is not so much this malice that exists, but more so of this is just how the military works. And to give you a little background on myself, I'm a fourth generation military officer. 
Uh, both my parents were pilots in the United States Air Force. And so I, I grew up around officers and I grew up around the military environment. And I, I had a passion for it and I love it. And I, I devoted my life to becoming a fighter pilot and a military officer. And I, I was successful in that. And even in my time at the academy where, you know, they taught us values of officership where, uh, you know, integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do, our oath to the Constitution as officers. All of these values were instilled in me for my entire life and to a large degree for pretty much every military officer. Uh, and so when I graduated from the academy as a distinguished graduate, uh, I had high hopes for how the military operated based off my, my life with my, my grandfather and my mother and my father and, and with what I saw at the academy. But it, it feels like there's almost an inversion uh, of reality here where um, everyone talks about these these high and, and beautiful values that everyone aspires to have. But then in execution, almost everyone says, well, that's just how the military works. You know, we follow orders and, and you know, we don't really question anything. And, and that's not the that's not what we that's not what we swore an oath to do. Um, and so, you know, this passion that I developed for my country and my constitution uh, in my career as an officer, uh, I feel almost a little bit betrayed because um, there seems to be the sentiment. Well, well, the military owned you. Well, you need to get the vaccine because that's what you signed up for. Um, I didn't sign up to take anything with mRNA in it when I entered the military in 2015 as an academy cadet, uh, nor when I commissioned in 2019. Um, and so, you know, there's so many arguments to be made for that. But the bottom line is that when I stood up and said, well, this is a violation of my constitutional religious beliefs or constitutionally based, excuse me, religious beliefs that are founded in the Constitution and the First Amendment, but also... As an officer, I think this this order is lawful, unlawful, and immoral. Um, people scoff that, and they said, "Well, you know, like it, I agree with you, but there's nothing I can do about it." And I hear that a lot from military officers: "Is I agree with you, but I can't do anything because that's just what the order came down to." And I think that's pretty contrary to our, our foundational beliefs as a military and as a country. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with you, and I would say um, what your reflecting is something that I think is part of a bigger pattern. Um, I know that as a scientist, I have been under tremendous pressure to acknowledge the truth of things that I can tell you are not true. Now, I don't know why I'm being told not to do the job I trained for, but that message has come through loud and clear on every channel. Do not behave as a scientist, behave as an advocate for a policy that I frankly believe to be uh, radically reckless. Um, and I think we can say the same thing about journalists, for example, right? They are being told not to report certain stories, only to say things that adhere to a particular perspective. We could say the same thing about social media platforms, which uh, apparently the executive branch is telling should have a slant in what sorts of discussions they allow and what sorts of uh, posts are tolerated. Um, so I guess the question is how many different round? Oh, and maybe the worst of these is doctors. Oh, doctors yeah. are being yes. coerced into violating the Hippocratic oath right? As if they have a higher obligation to this policy of mass vaccination than they do to do no harm to their patients. So at every realm where I see um, this policy being discussed or debated, everybody is being told, don't do the job you trained for, 
right? Don't be a doctor. Don't be a scientist. Don't be a journalist. Don't defend your constitution. And how many of those realms would you have to see before you said, you know what? That isn't incompetence. That's a pattern. Everybody is being told not to do their job. Why would that happen? What are the, what are the least frightening explanations for everybody in civilization being told, don't do your job, right? And, the, you know, the problem is we can come up with the least bad explanation, but they're still pretty bad. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you this, Brett, there's an old joke, and Olivia will appreciate I know she knows this one, but it's uh, once is once is random, twice is a coincidence, but three times is enemy action. Yeah, I was uh, hesitating <laughs> to be the one to introduce that because uh, I am obviously in the worst position to, to say it. But I, you know, I do think there's some wisdom there, right? We're looking at something that behaves like enemy action. And, you know, my feeling, you know, as somebody who tries to be very careful about, I don't even think in terms of conspiracy theories. You have hypotheses. They function just as a scientific hypothesis does. They make predictions. You try to figure out whether you try to prove them false. And in this case, the um, least terrifying explanation for the pattern of behavior that we see is that um, our system has been captured by something. And this has become uh, purely about money and it has um, absolute indifference to human suffering and death. Right. For sure. And, 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 and indifference to the well-being of the nation in the long term. The, and, and this wasn't, you know, um, I don't know if you know, um, Marsha Angle. She was the uh, director of the doctor, uh, medical doctor, first female uh, editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. Long time. Uh, barely. Editor. Yeah. Uh, she, she wrote a book that came out, I think, in 2000, I don't know, six, eight. It was the darling of, and you'll appreciate this, the political left at the time because she was telling truth to power. And she was, she detailed in that book, I think it's called How Pharma Deceives Us, or I forget what the title is, the full title. But essentially the book details in her role as um, head of the New England Journal of Medicine, she just lays out that in, in her view and experience, the pharmaceutical industry had the regulatory capture of the food and drug administration by pharma was, was complete during her watch. And the book was hailed as a, as a triumph and how wonderful and truthy, you know, and how it told the real truth. And then now if you go look at, you can find articles that are sort of why Marsha angle wasn't really correct about pharma. And, you know, suddenly <laughs> Pfizer has gone from being, you know, the largest criminal fine in history to being the savior of, of mankind. You know, it's, uh, we live in, we live in an amazing time. I, I wanted to at least throw out, you know, when you talk about this idea of the worst, the least, the least worst, uh, possible, um, thing is I would just say that, you know, while this has been going down, you've got, uh, I think it's something like 10 of the last 14 FDA directors now sit on boards for pharmaceutical companies. My favorite is Scott Gottlieb, was uh 2017 to 19 director of the fda he of course winds up at pfizer and then the trump guy steve hahn comes in from 2019 to 21 uh in january of 2022 or 2021 he approves spike vax less than six months later in june he's sitting on the board of directors for the company that owns moderna which itself took DARPA money. 
Um, I mean, at some <laughs> at some point, you know, the FDA owns uh, Robert Kennedy at, at Children's Health Defense made the made the claim that uh, that the FDA is fundamentally a pharmaceutical company with regulatory power. And uh, he said, oh, they've got 31 patents. And, and somebody decided to do a funny fact check on Robert Kennedy. And, and they said, fact check, it's not 31 patents, it's 57. And they own, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, they own something like, um, a, they've got a $4 billion IP portfolio, you know? So, I mean, 42% of the, the vaccine regulatory budget for enforcement, 42% of it is uh, paid for by user fees from the pharmaceutical industry. So if I paid 42% of your salary, <laughs> you're a regulator. I mean, how, how could you possibly, how do we pretend that this is all, that this is all okay? I mean, it, it's, it's just, it's as bad as you could possibly imagine. You know, it would be like the SEC having a stock portfolio. You know, you, you, you wouldn't think that that was, a, you know, the, what could go wrong, you know, I mean, and, and yet here we are. That's, this is all, those are all matters of public record. Yeah, yeah I, I must say this is the part of it that is hardest for me to understand is that I don't think there's anything especially new about the idea of regulatory capture, right? That's a, no, a no, phrase no. I've, I've known for, yeah. you know, a decade and a half, right? It's a well-known phenomenon. Pharma is known to be among the, um, the worst cases of this phenomenon. It's been thoroughly academically documented. And suddenly, in this case, we have people marching in lockstep as, you know, I mean, I, in fact, have been trying to pose the question to people to wake them up. What fraction of the policy that we see surrounding these so-called vaccines do you think is the result of uh, undue influence by pharma, right? And my feeling is if you say zero, I know you're either lying or a fool. Right. right. So if it's not zero, then really the question we ought to be discussing is, OK, it's somewhere, you know, between zero and 100. This is looking a lot closer to 100 to me. <laughs> and it behaves like 100. Now, that's what I want to hear. It sure looks like 100. But, you know, let, let's get back to the central matter here. This is one thing when we're dealing with the civilian population. I mean, it's jaw dropping and. Uh, I struggle to find words to uh, to even encapsulate how terrifying it is to watch this thing, not even interested in vaccinating as many people who, as will accept it, but strong arming people into it. But this becomes so much more dangerous when it's the military to whom we are doing this, because the role the military plays in preserving this system is obviously, you know, literally at the front line. So, um, and the fact that the mandates have held on more tenaciously in that context, presumably that's because the chain of command uh, already has a leg up on telling members of the military what to do, right? And the circumstances in which a member of the military is justified in refusing uh, an order are, you know, those are extreme circumstances. And so, I mean, A, I do see a kind of turning of the tables here, right? We in the civilian population cannot leave our military behind. If we have successfully fended off these mandates because they were medically absurd to begin with um, and 
extremely dangerous. The younger you were, the more dangerous they were. This is about the future of that civilian population. For us now to walk away from that issue while the military is still exposed to this danger is not only foolish from the point of view of our long-term well-being in the civilian population, but it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a betrayal of the service that the military provides for the nation. So can we talk about what that's like to be um, forgotten, to have your mandates persist after the civilian population has more or less escaped its yeah, Brett, this has been incredibly troubling. I think uh, one of the challenges that I saw was the Secretary of Defense mandated the COVID-19 vaccine in August of 2021. At that point, after over a year and a half of living with COVID, we'd lost 28 military service members. Now, obviously, any loss of life is you know, a terrible thing, um, but that number is far eclipsed by suicides, motorcycle accidents, you know, alcohol-related incidents. After implementing the mandate uh, by October, late October, that number had more than doubled and we'd gone to 70 military deaths that were you know, labeled due to COVID. And those are the DOD's own num- the Department of Defense's own numbers. At that point, it shocked me that um, considering there was no parallel in the civilian population, the Department of Defense didn't feel a need to stop and reassess the order that they had put out having witnessed such an incredible loss of life. Um, I, I don't understand what's going on. And to your point with, you know, capture or whatever's happening, clearly, clearly things are not where they need to be. Uh, one of the things that the military is known for, and as a prior aviator, one of the things we always do after every mission is to debrief. And so, you know, you go, you prep for a mission, you fly your mission, Hopefully you get the bad guys and then you come back and you talk about it and you say, hey, guys, how can we do this better in the future? And we haven't seemed to do that at all with any of these policies, which um, is just not aligned with military culture and has been really disturbing. You know, it's shocking, frankly. Yeah. And look, I I, again, I know that we have to be very careful about what hypotheses we entertain here. But this is another data point. The idea that you would not reflect on the policy and figure out what worked and what didn't and what was its effect on our readiness and how can we fix it. Exactly. That is also consistent with, you know, I will try to find some alternative to enemy action, but it is beyond incompetent, right? An incompetent entity might review what happened incompetently. But the desire to ignore what happened and not improve the policy is is um, it is only consistent at the the absolute least pernicious explanation is total indifference to the well-being of service members and the readiness of our military force. Well, to your point about that's, that's the least bad it could be to your point about the military getting left behind. I think you can maybe stir up a little bit of passion for those that that are listening to this. And I thank you for taking the time to listen is that, um, you know, it's not just the simple fact that, that service members are being coerced into taking this vaccine. It's, it's what's happening with the coercion, you know, for for my personal experience, uh, you know, I, I literally spent my entire life trying to be a fighter pilot. I remember distinctly thinking that my eighth grade science fair 
project somehow mattered for me getting into the Air Force Academy. Um, and it, it's been my passion. And so I love flying. I absolutely <laughs> adore flying. I think it's the most fun job in the world. It's an absolute blast. And so, you know, to be grounded now for over a year and watch my peers and my friends, you know, put on, put on the G suit and the flight suit and go fly and rage around and hear their stories. And, uh, it, it's, it's, it makes, it makes me a little bummed out. I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating and it's saddening. And, and my story isn't even close to the worst of it. I, I recently spoke to a service member, uh, who was told after he got a federal injunction protecting him from discharge that he had two options. He could either get the vaccine or the military would move him to the middle of nowhere, Alaska with his wife and kids uh, because he wasn't considered deployable and they thought that maybe moving him to Alaska might convince him. He ended up getting the vaccine over that uh, just because he knew that moving his family to the center of Alaska, it was just not something that was even remotely sustainable. And keep in mind again, that this is after he had a federal injunction protecting him from discharge. So the coercion's not over. And in this kind of sentiment that's directed towards these service members who are unvaccinated is exactly what's forcing people out. I mean, even our own fighter pilot community is, 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 leaving because of, of, of things like this. Our, our fighter pilot retention in 2021 was below 30%. That means less than 30% of people who finish their 10-year contract as an aviator are staying in the military. Uh, we are hemorrhaging people at a time when we're already 1,650 pilots short in the Air Force alone. And in 2017, the chief of staff of the Air Force called a 1,500 pilot shortage a crisis. So we are in a pilot crisis. And like Dale mentioned, the pilots seem to be specifically targeted in these mandates. We are in a crisis of pilots in the military. And that's a humongous readiness issue. And it's policies like this vaccine program where people feel like they're alone and left behind and isolated uh, and attacked. That's, that's making people that are even vaccinated go, you know what, I, I think I'm going to leave this organization because it doesn't seem to represent my values or it doesn't seem to care about me. Um, and I, I would encourage the civilian population and all the viewers to start speaking up about that because uh, that kind of sentiment is exactly how our military crumbles. And in a time like today with China and Ukraine and Russia, that's, that's a dangerous precedent to set for our military when we need every single service member possible. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's particularly acute with respect to pilots for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but I can see, first of all, that the amount we invest in the training of pilots is disproportionate because the job is so technical and so difficult. The equipment we entrust to pilots is extremely expensive. And so, and you know, and here's where I'm really speculating, but I would imagine that um, as difficult a job as it is to become uh, a fighter pilot uh, under simulated conditions, that in the heat of battle, the quality of pilots um, is certain to be a, a central question. That is to say, who can keep their, their cool enough to not only fly the plane, but operate the weapons and, you know, put themselves in the right spot. So there's something shocking about, you know, of, you know, we're not, this is not the indifference of the command to the infantry, which would be bad enough, right? These are highly trained professionals who are being strong armed into taking a vaccine that frankly is maximally dangerous in, uh, in a pilot who, uh, can't afford to have a sudden heart attack uh, in the air. And 
you know that that data is slow to emerge but um the let's put it this way if you pay attention to medical circles in which people are seeing adverse events they are not only seeing um, anomalous heart attacks in young healthy people they are also seeing things like um, automobile accidents uh, on the rise in a spectacular way that is consistent with the idea that people who would ordinarily have gotten from a to b without a problem suddenly have uh, a severe medical incident behind the wheel and the car careens off the road that's all the worse if you know you're fifteen thousand feet in the air um so you know to the extent that there is no medical argument for vaccinating a young healthy person with these mrna vaccines in the worst case um, it's even worse when that person's job involves extreme uh, pressures on their physiology and the necessity that they stay absolutely competent until the plane is back on the ground. Am I wrong about well, this? To your, to your point, no, you, you've got it. And I'll just add to it, Brett. Go ahead, John. To your point on, on the data that you mentioned and how it's, there's not a lot of data, um, I independently quantified exactly what you're talking about in terms of, of the pilots that, that could, we could stand to lose from these vaccine mandates. Uh, I worked with 350 unvaccinated pilots to generate a grassroots, if you will, study on exactly what those pilots mean to our national security. And, and in that study of 352 pilots, which is only about half of the unvaccinated pilots that I'm aware of in the Department of Defense, um, they are worth $7.8 billion in tax money. And that's including salary and training costs and everything else. That's only 350 and that's $7.8 billion. That's a big number. And the average years of service of those pilots is 14 years. So we're not standing to lose uh, younger, inexperienced pilots like myself. We're standing to lose extremely experienced aviators with deployments and actual combat experience overseas. Uh, and that's not something that you can just recruit in. Uh, and fix the problem immediately uh, as a military. So uh, these are extremely valuable people, you know, and also their families. You know, there's 800 dependents in in that in that study as well. And so, uh, you know, this has largely gone ignored by Congress, which I think is unfortunate. And I hope that many members of Congress start to see the study that we release, because although it's not an official study, and, and to some degree, some of those numbers are are estimates. Um, they're conservative estimates at the very least, and you know, 14 years of service is certainly something that's not an estimate. That's real hard data. Uh, and so uh, with that, uh, on top of the injuries, I also helped to generate a congressional injury report that, that talks about and has medical data from service members who have been injured by the vaccine. And some of those injuries include a fighter pilot who got pericarditis, has been grounded for seven months. There was one enlisted service member that had four strokes after getting the vaccine. Uh, and so these are, these are serious injuries. And Florida just recently, a few days ago, released a study where they said that they're no longer recommending the COVID vaccine, any version of the COVID vaccine for or mRNA vaccines at the very least for people in the 18 to 39 male age group. Uh, and that's based off of a self-controlled case study that they did on their own data. And so, uh, you know, it's starting to come out, at least in Florida and, and other locations across the world, that, that they're not recommending this vaccine to people. So I, I can't see how, in light of that information, that we could be recommending that when we know for a fact that this vaccine is maiming and injuring our most competent and qualified military members. Maiming and injuring people who are perfectly capable of fending off. I mean, I believe COVID is a serious disease. Let's be clear about that. But 
young people who are healthy and the military is disproportionately composed of such people are perfectly capable of fending off COVID naturally. It is their best option. And these uh, so-called vaccines have such a uh, powerful risk profile that it just there is no medical argument for this. Right. Um, And, you know, I I think you've done a good job of uh, exploring all of the various ways that this um, impinges on our our readiness. You know, there's the financial investment. There's the the risk to pilots. You point out uh, something I had missed, which is that you're losing the experienced pilots who are obviously uh, essential to our being able to to fight in the air. Right. This really it couldn't be more foolish. You also point to another group of people who is effectively being expected not to do their job here, which is members of Congress, right? The members of Congress have a patriotic duty to protect our military, not just for the military's sake, which would be sufficient on its own, but because of the role the military plays in protecting the nation. The fact is, I don't care if you're going to lose an election for doing the right thing. You got yourself elected to Congress, presumably because you wanted to make better law. Well, here's your opportunity, right? We have an obvious travesty of justice and a hazard to the nation's military readiness. Where is the the uprising in Congress that uh, forces the federal government to relent? And my understanding is... They also take an oath to support and defend the Constitution. So, you know, I'll turn it over. Go ahead, Dale. But they also they have the same oath as we do. This is same oath. Uh, And and of course, we know that if we're being really honest about political issues here, you know, there's no bill that uh, Republicans could could get passed right now to do anything in the House. There's discussion. And certainly as, as a lawyer working on a lot of these cases, we've had some discussions with Senator Johnson's office and, and a lot of these folks, but um, I don't I don't put any hope that that that's going to magic itself because President you know Biden is is he he'll veto anything so I presumably he's not going to sign a bill that says whoops I was wrong since he's the one who man you know uh, ensured that this mandate is happening and so the you know we're going to have to find a way out of this uh, in the courts I think or you know because I, I don't see how that's going to come through a house or a Senate that's divided and, you know, uh, you're, you're being, you're being too easy on them. I don't expect it either, but that is people falling down on their obligation to their nation, to the oath that they took to their fellow man, to their fellow citizen. The fact is many of us, and I include myself here have taken very substantial risks to say the right things. That is to say, to explore this issue honestly and expose what is taking place. And the costs have been high for many of us. I mean, as this group of people can illustrate, and, you know, as you all know, for each one of you sitting here, there are dozens of others with stories of what they've faced. So the, the fact that People will not, you know, look, the military is composed of people who believe that there are hills on which one must be willing to die. 
right? That there, there are things worth fighting for. That's the nature of the military. And the fact that on the civilian side, not only are people not willing to die for anything, they're not willing to risk their reputation or their job over anything is a sad commentary on, um, on what we have become. So I, I expect more of these people to the extent that President Biden has overseen a mandate that has been a disaster. Of course, the right thing for him to do is to give a hell of a speech to that effect. Right. Of course, that's the right thing to do. And I would respect him a great deal more if he did that rather than keep doubling down on a bad policy that's killing people. Well, Congress yeah. certainly can. Hey, we're, this, this group is uh, is uh, for some perspective, Brett, but the clients of which John and Olivia, I've got three different cases and a total of about 900, maybe a thousand clients right now, military clients. And I, and I took on so many for a lot of reasons. But one of them was that I thought there was something to be. I knew there were so many people knocking on my door, as Olivia said, largely out of this book that I had written about the prior iteration of this. In fact, Olivia would be would be arguably justified in claiming, you know, this is her second time in her career, within a 20-year career, that she's facing is facing an illegal Department of Defense vaccine mandate. I mean, they they got shut down the first time for the anthrax one. We got a we got a court order shutting that down, but you know, it the group that I represent, I thought it would it would be helpful in mass, but there are, I think if we were our own Air Force, we would be the 16th largest Air Force in the world. Like just my clients would be the sixth, the world's 16th largest Air Force. I mean, we have between pilots, crew, we've got heavy lift, you know, C-5 pilots, uh, C-141 pilots, C-130 pilots, air, the entire aircraft range. We've got um, V-22 Osprey pilots in the Marine Corps. We've got F-35 pilots. We've got crew chiefs, loadmasters. I mean, I, I represent qualitatively almost a battalion level, you know, of officers and enlisted who all know this is, this is wrong. And, and they're all getting the boot. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I want to make sure that we, um, cover certain things in the time that we have sure. left. And I know that there's more for both Olivia and John that should be explored in terms of what you experienced uh, in the military prior to these mandates, what you have experienced in terms of uh, uh, consequences from standing up against the mandates. I want to talk about uh, the question of the religious um exemption, how it's functioning, what it might be based on. Um, so let's make sure we don't miss any of those topics. Um, either one of you feel, uh, sorry, I should be, I should be directing better than I am, but, uh, does either one of you feel like this is a moment to, to jump in and fill in part of that story? Sure. Uh, John kind of spoke to some of the challenges he's faced for me. Um, you know, 20 years, you're going to see some crazy stuff. And in the past, I've actually witnessed other violations of law. What I found striking is in the past, when when we would uncover some sort of um, some action that was either illegal or, you know, discriminatory, or there was something wrong that was going on, leadership had a genuine interest in what was occurring. And they sought to resolve that issue as quickly as possible. You know, it was an all hands on deck effort. There was absolute transparency. We brought in lawyers um, or whoever we needed to bring in to ensure that the wrongs that were occurring were remedied immediately. 
that hasn't been the case for you know anything related to COVID nineteen. So. As I, as I said earlier, you know, my family and I, we were headed out to China uh, to go be diplomats. And um, when we were grounded, our stuff, our household goods had already been packed out. So everything we owned, all of our worldly possessions had been put into boxes and were put um, in a warehouse here in D.C. And we're just waiting for you know us to arrive in China so that they could send our stuff overseas. Our household goods were held for an entire year before the military agreed to release them. And anytime I would ask about it, you know, I was kind of told, well, you know how to get your stuff. Medical's right down the road. And that was with a religious accommodation pending. Uh, absolutely illegal, not something that you can do. That was just one example of the sort of you know challenges that I've personally faced. I've had training canceled or denied. Um, I've had leave chits, requests for vacation denied. I didn't get to go to um, one of my daughter's medical appointments, to my sister's baby shower. When things were really stressful, uh, I, I'd been told... <laughs> I've been told that I was going to get kicked out of the military two weeks prior to my 20 years. And I had several people that I know kind of pull me to the side and say, are you really, really willing to risk your retirement over this? Um, and for me, the Constitution is worth it. You know, absolutely, I'm willing to risk my retirement. And fortunately, at this point, it won't come to that. Um, I guess we'll see. But uh most recently, I've received an adverse fitness report that's like a performance evaluation in the civilian world. I am being uh, recommended for a board of inquiry based on not taking two um, emergency use authorized COVID-19 tests. So, you know, the vaccines aren't the only emergency use authorized products out there. COVID tests and face masks are also emergency use authorized products, and they have the same legal protections that we discussed earlier. Americans, to include service members, have the right to accept or refuse these products at any time. Um, and I was also kicked out of my command and I'm actually, you know, in the middle of going to a new command right now. And all of that was for speaking up at a town hall at the agency I worked for and questioning the legality of it. You know, one of the points I made, I just, I keep hearing from DOD department of defense leadership. I apologize. I'll try not to use acronyms. It's a language in and of itself in the military. Um, one of the things DOD, that I, DOD we've got, I agree. You can, uh, you can leave us in the dust pretty easily. But <laughs> DOD we've got. So, you know, I'd questioned the DOD mandates and, and one of the things that I keep hearing from senior military leaders is that they're just following policy. And, uh, one of, one of the things that I like to point out is that a policy never trumps law, certainly not the constitution. And then B DOD policy has been wrong in the past, you know, and I like to remind people, we used to have don't ask, don't tell. We didn't allow African-Americans in the service. We didn't allow women in the service. And now in hindsight, we look back and we realize that those policies were misplaced. And I just ask people, you know, at the point now where the president of the United States has stated that we no longer are, are in a crisis, you know, COVID is not an emergency anymore. I think he said the pandemic was over specifically. Um, why is it that we continue to drive out all of these service members, coerce people, take these negative actions against each of our service members? And again, we're talking about over 80,000 people here, people who want to serve their country, people who are actively trying to support and defend the Constitution in taking the actions that we're taking right now. Uh, the punishment that's being inflicted on our service members is unacceptable and, and really disturbing. Well, again, 
I, I wish it didn't. I wish I could be on the other side of this argument, but um, this again matches exactly what you would predict if somebody was not interested in our long-term well-being as a nation because uh, for whatever reason, the policies that are so devastating here are um, being advanced most aggressively by what I call the blue team, uh, the Democratic Party, of which I've been a lifelong member, but uh, I, I can't even recognize that party now. And so if you were interested in keeping that party in power so that it could continue to advance bad policy, um, but you also uh, were interested in degrading military readiness, then the mandates might persist in the military while they are uh, withdrawn in advance of midterm elections or something like that uh, in the civilian population. I mean, I, I hear myself saying that, and I, I know how it sounds. On the other hand, I'm a scientist, and what I do is I look at patterns and I eliminate uh, potential explanations based on the fact that they don't fit until we're down to a small number of explanations that might might underlie the pattern. And in this case, that is a very unfortunate process that points in a direction that uh, I think ought to alarm every American. Yeah, 100%. Um, John, do you want to speak to uh, what's happened to you as a result of your stance uh, on the on the so-called vaccines? Certainly. So, uh, really, th this all began for me in September of 2021, if I remember correctly. September 21st, 2021, I was called into my commander's office and I was told, the mandate's here. Uh, I know you don't want to get the vaccine. You've expressed that to me. Um, and you said you were going to apply for religious accommodation. So, here's your option. You either apply for a religious accommodation or a medical exemption or you get the vaccine. Uh, and that in and of itself is fine. That, that's, that's within the realm of, of the legal structure and, and the regulatory structure of the military is affording the option to get an exemption for the vaccine if there's a mandate. And so I applied for a religious accommodation, but there was a catch. And that catch was, well, if you apply for religious accommodation, you're going to be grounded and you're no longer going to be able to train in the F-16. And uh, that that is where the issue kind of begins because uh, the Air Force's own policies uh, on religious accommodations say that no adverse training decisions can be made based off of the application of a religious accommodation. So uh, it was immediately contrary to um, the Air Force's own policies in this. Uh, but nonetheless, I pushed through because, you know, I have a firm religious belief and it's rooted in uh, the use of fetal cells for testing in, in, in the COVID vaccines. Um, and I'm, I'm a devout Catholic and I'm pro-life. So uh, I, I decided to press forward with that, and that would have been my concern since the beginning of these vaccines. And so uh, I requested that religious accommodation. I was grounded, uh, and then I immediately filed an equal opportunity complaint uh, against my command for grounding me uh, over that. And to this day, to this day, a year later now, I have still not heard anything about that equal opportunity complaint. Um, even though I cited all the policy, I, I, I've had no communication and no adjudication of that of that complaint, which is which is concerning of itself that, that the equal opportunity program is either that backed up or is is somehow you know burying my paperwork. I'm not going to make any accusations, but uh, I, I was ultimately denied that religious accommodation and I appealed it. But what's interesting is in my denial, there were some interesting interesting arguments made about, about about why I had to get the vaccine. And some of those arguments included, well, um, you would have to wear a mask if you were flying, and 
you can't wear a mask when you're flying an F-16. Uh, and that's strange because masks have never been required for air crew in any capacity whatsoever. Uh, and I assume they mean like an N95 mask or something. But I, I mean, I wear a mask when I fly and I'm an, in a jet by myself. So it's, I mean, like, you know, the closest we'll get is like 20 feet away from each other. And that's, that's, so, that's social distancing. Um, and I'm literally in like a bubble. It's like a COVID bubble, right? Yeah, I mean, in other canopy. Uh, <laughs> the absurdity of this is almost incalculable. I mean, this is a virus yes. that so far does not appear to transmit outdoors. You're in a plane alone, and there is no conceivable way that you could transmit this virus to anyone or catch it from anyone in this context, right? What's more, I mean, as if that weren't in and of itself, catch 22 level absurdity, yeah. right? The vaccines don't prevent you from catching or transmitting this virus. And therefore, the whole basis for this is about protecting at best, and the argument is thin as can be, but at best, these vaccines can be argued to protect vulnerable people from severe consequences after they have caught the thing. Right. That argument can't be made for somebody young and healthy like yourself. And so uh, the only thing that protects this policy is that the people advancing it don't have to explain why. Right. It can't be explained. There is no logic here that could explain why the military wants you to get this to protect you in your plane. It makes no sense. No You're sense exactly at all. Right. If the military was interested in you being protected, they would want you not to get the vaccine because it carries risks and you're better off fending off the disease uh, yes. with uh, your own natural immunity. And, and speaking of which, Brett, you know, the other part of this is that what's been going on that's lost and it's a part of the lawsuit is what you just said is natural immunity. You know, I grew up I grew up when. You know, it was pretty well established that, for example, I had chicken pox. I don't, you know, if you did when you were growing up as a kid, yep. that that meant that I was never going to get a chicken pox vaccine. Yep. Because it had been well established, you know, as old as I am. I, don't, I think we're probably about the same age. We're probably pretty close in age. But, you know, it was pretty well established that uh, it's contraindicated for you to get a vaccine or a shot, you know, a, a prophylactic shot for a disease you've already had. And so if you had chicken pox, you, you weren't going to get the chicken pox vaccine. So we've got a huge swath of the military, you know, given where we are now, two and a half years in on a respiratory virus, most people have had it and, and would, you know, have some form of immunity to it. And the, and the interesting thing is the DOD in 2013 acknowledged natural immunity. It's right in the DOD regulation on chemoprophylaxis, AR 40-562, right in there says you should be exempt. It's a preferential that you should be exempt if you've already had this. And it is amazing how quickly when this came out, I mean, I went right to that because I had experience with it. So I was telling people, hey, put this in your request that you've got natural immunity, go get tested. If you're positive, you should be exempt. We should, and all these medical exemptions, the natural immunity, the entire that regulatory framework, the biology that underlies the entire basis for these things just went, I mean, out the window. And people who had prior anaphylaxis, I had clients who couldn't get 
couldn't get their commands to acknowledge. They're like, well, you have to prove now that you'll have anaphylaxis to this vaccine. I'm like, that's, that's an insane. I mean, that's just, just, I can't believe anybody says that. And so, you know, to your, to your point, I know you think I've maybe been a little light on a Brett, but I mean, I, I feel pretty strongly like I, the religious accommodation process isn't when it's supposed to be, you file the religious accommodation, nothing happens to you as John pointed out. I tell people that when you take action to harm someone's career after they've filed for a religious accommodation, that's not a religious accommodation policy. That's a religious targeting policy. Yes. And, it's religious persecution. Right. And, and what you're doing, the other thing is, we don't know how many people who saw this, and I can tell you, I mean, I, I'm aware and I've done a little work on, there's 42 Navy or 42 chaplains who are suing, military chaplains who are suing over this vaccine in the Eastern District of Virginia. Um the case is Alvarado, and they'll—they've been clear in their affidavits that from the beginning they were told um, that that it was going to be DOD policy. They weren't going to grant any. So, so this has been—I mean, from the get-go, they—you know—there were policies that were in effect where the the DOD had made the decision that even all of its own regulations were going to be violated in order to to let people know that we, we're going to hammer you regardless. You know, they're not, so, we're not going to follow the policies and we don't even know how many people didn't bother filing for religious accommodation or whatever. Cause they were told there's no point. You're going to get kicked out. You're going to, you know, I mean, I know John and Olivia know that, that for every one of them who's had the courage to stand up, there's probably another 10 who, who just were, were cowed, were broken because of what the DOD has done. Yeah, this is uh, this is the tragedy of it is how many people, you know, had the objection and the concern and uh, knuckled under because fighting, you know, the DOD is is too frightening a prospect. Um, I, I will say that, again, the the pattern is unmistakable. Yeah. Whatever this policy is, it is not medically based right and again i don't know i can't imagine if you talked to me 10 years ago and told me this sentence is going to come out of your mouth i would have said huh what would have to have happened in order for me to say that but we have a policy in which we are mandating something that we are calling a vaccine that is really far more radical than a vaccine that is not apparently based on medical well-being it's not that it misunderstands medical well-being. It's indifferent to medical well-being. Right. And the idea that that policy, whatever it is, whatever its purpose, is so important that we are going to violate constitutional principles like your right to religious belief um, is absolutely shocking. Now, we should get into what, you know, you mentioned, John, the issue of fetal cells, which although you and I might see that issue differently in the particulars, I see it as a perfectly valid reason to object in the strongest terms. If you hold certain religious beliefs that are commonly held um, by many Americans, then that is an offense. It is an offense. Um, and uh, I could come up with analogies uh, from other contexts, I think I will hold back from doing so. But nonetheless, the idea that if you believe that um, those fetal cells are effectively uh, human beings 
deceased human beings that were utilized in the production of these um, of these vaccines, then it seems to me that your right to object to them is is absolute. And yet it falls on deaf ears. I mean, it, it, what is it like when somebody tells you that that belief isn't sufficient to justify your uh, refusing a vaccine that actually has no medical benefit to offer you anyway? You know, it's, um, yeah, I'm a Catholic and, and I'm sure, as you know, and everyone knows Catholics are criticized quite often and, and that's fine. So honestly being told that my beliefs are, are, uh, invalid or whatever is, is not anything new. Um, and it's not really anything that totally phases me because I'm totally set and, and rooted in my beliefs and, and they give me a good life and I'm blessed. So that, 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 that is unfortunate. It's frustrating at the very least to say that that these accommodations are being denied because you're not valid. Where, where, the, where it's really truly frustrating for me is the fact that um, it's it's contrary to the Constitution and my oath to the Constitution, and it's contrary to the policies. And and, and more importantly, um, I think that it's the perfect compromise. And that's really what what confuses me the most is the fact that if you were just simply to grant these religious accommodations, which are essentially lawfully required to be granted, all things considered, um, you can still have your vaccine mandate. You can still have your vaccine mandate if people are allergic to some of the ingredients in the vaccine. You give them an exam an exemption. You can still have your vaccine mandate if you grant religious accommodations. You don't even have to overturn it. You can just grant these exemptions, uh, and everyone's happy. Uh, and although you know, there are deeper rooted issues with the legality of the mandate and everything else, at the very least, I think this would be a lot less of a problem if those were just granted. Certainly, from the perspective of national security. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, I, I would say that um, it does feel like religious persecution um, to be ignored and to scream out into the void, if you will, um, about this. And, and what's more is is that people just don't simply understand. They think I'm a crazy person or they tell people that, well, there's no organized religion really that's popular and common in America that says that you can't take the vaccine when that's actually really not that true. The archbishop of the military diocese himself said that to deny a religious accommodation for those with sincerely held beliefs would be contrary to federal law and morally abhorrent. And that, that's the Archbishop of the Military Diocese, who is quite literally a Catholic figurehead in the military. Uh, and so we're, we're, to some degree, I wouldn't say being lied to, but, but being told things that aren't necessarily true when they say that, well, like, your faith can't even, you, you don't have enough faith for that. And I know military members, especially the enlisted corps and the younger guys who have been told by even chaplains that, well, your religious belief isn't valid, um, that, that that's not part of Christianity. Uh, and that's just that that's not how Christianity works for one and and also not how it works within the realm of the law and, and to tell people that they can't have a religious accommodation um, when they request it is is concerning and, and a little bit scary if you, if you if I can be totally honest well I, I think it's actually terrifying and uh, cards on the table I'm not a religious person I don't consider myself an atheist but I'm very close to it. I don't believe in an interventionist God, but I have to say there is something about this disease, the apparent origin of it, which is unnatural, the result of at best um, scientific hubris. And the fact of this incredibly radical medical intervention, which is bound 
Heather and I spotted at the beginning that this was such an unusual way to intervene in bodily physiology that the risks were just almost uncountable. The number of ways this could go wrong was very large from the beginning, even before we knew that it did go wrong. But the whole thing to me, like I struggle for a term that isn't, there is something unholy about this, right? Again, I'm not a religious person, but the idea that someone thinks that I might be or you might be required to accept this intervention, despite the fact that it doesn't actually work epidemiologically to prevent the spread of the thing, right? If it did, the question might be somewhat different, but it doesn't. And yet somebody would tell us that we are required to accept this and that our sincerely held belief that it is the wrong thing to do is immaterial is shocking. It's shocking. And in this case, you have an objection. You know, I, 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 will, um, I will say that the belief that Catholics hold about fetuses is a, it doesn't have to be perfectly philosophically consistent, but it is, right? If you believe in a God who intervenes in the affairs of humans that decides that a child will come into the world, right? Then everything about your objection here flows very naturally from that belief, which frankly, although I don't believe it, nobody on earth can say it isn't true, right? It, it is a simple matter of this is where my understanding of the universe leads me. Nobody can tell you it isn't right. And if it is right, then of course it makes this objection very obvious and robust and to be stared down by a military that can't explain in rational terms why it should want you to take this thing in the first place is it's just it's jaw dropping um, so I want to get a little bit we talked in a prior conversation about the nature of the constitutional protection for religious beliefs. And I've alluded to it a little bit here, but I think it's likely that virtually everybody in my audience has only a passing familiarity at best with these protections. So do one or all of you want to speak to what the Constitution actually says? How do we know if your religious uh, belief is a, is a valid uh, reason to be exempt? Well, I'll, I'll take, uh, I'll do a little of the heavy lifting as a lawyer just because I'm fairly familiar with it. But um, one of the interesting aspects to the, the government looking into the courts have said, essentially, look, it's not for us to pass judgment on whether a religious belief is valid or not. And so it's largely, can you articulate, uh, uh, you know, something that's coherent it doesn't even have to be really, I don't want to say logical. It, it's really, do you have a, a religious belief? And in that sense, they're really just trying to say it's a belief about which, um, you know, how you believe the universe is organized and, and matters outside of sort of, it's not a political assertion. But I will say that there are, you know, the line gets pretty close. There are people who feel, for example, I represented a, a, a airline pilot who put in for a religious accommodation and part of his his belief was it was scriptural based and there was certainly the fetal cell thing but 
one of the things he said was that I thought was interesting was that the government actions in this case started to look more and more uh, remnant of uh, scripture and that the government's desire to force this no matter what started to make it look like its own religion. Like this is a, you know, you must get the jab and that the, the secular humanism that underlies this now has become its own religious kind of dogma. And, and his take was, Hey, I'm, you know, I only have one God. And so I, I can't serve. And there's a lot of other scriptural things about whether putting a, I mean, I have a devout Orthodox Jew, Jewish client as well. And there's a lot of Torah passages that certainly suggest that it would be, that it would not be proper for a, an observant purpose, uh, observant person to do this, particularly given the technology, you know, you've alluded to this, Brett, that they're not vaccines. They're treatments fundamentally, since they don't prevent transmission, they, they fall right into therapies and, and they were, you know, the, uh, the folks who made them in SEC filings referred to them as gene therapies. They did it before other regulatory bodies. And then the, the FDA realized they, they went right after they announced this program, they switched the definition on the website of, of vaccine. And so um, all of that made, you know, one, one client say, yeah, this, this is looking like I'm being asked to, it's a loyalty test, you know, it's a, and it's, it's forcing people into the idea of choosing this over their God or their beliefs. And so I don't even think you really need to get too deep into whether HEK cell line 293 was used. There's, there's a lot of other reasons why people of conscience should and could be outside of it. And the Supreme Court would say, at least the case law says, that's good enough. You know, there is no, it's not like you need to have the Pope back you up in order to, to be entitled to some, you know, protection of, of conscience. Am I right? My understanding is that the test is effectively, is your belief earnestly held? Are yes. you faking in order to get out of something or right. do you actually believe that? And if you actually believe it, then it isn't a question of whether it makes sense or others believe it. Right. Am I yes, right about that? Yep. Yep. You've got it pretty much. Sincerely held belief. Sincerely held belief. So I would also say, you know, I mean, I think this is very interesting territory because, again, uh, I'm pretty close to what would have been called a secular humanist or is called a secular humanist. I'm certainly uh, a science first. Uh, maybe I don't want to say that, but from the point of view of what I believe to be true, I'm definitely science first. Right. I believe that values have a different status, but, um, but science is my guiding light from the point of view of what is and is not true. And even from that perspective, am I allowed, you know, if I was working in a university still, would I be allowed to opt out of these so-called vaccines on the basis that I understand how immunity works that I believe more strongly in my body's ability to uh, fight this virus based on uh, ancient capacities that I have on board rather than a radical new technology in which a corporation decides that it wants to conscript my cells into becoming factories for a protein that is known to be physiologically dangerous. It, it seems right. to me that I am well within my rights to say, actually, 
I believe that my immunity is better than that plan. I, I actually, and have a, yet I know that. Go ahead. I actually have a story for you on exactly that. So, uh, when I first requested a religious accommodation, Please. another individual that was requesting one as well, another fighter pilot, actually processed a religious accommodation for ethical veganism. Um, and that was her, her reasoning for why she requested a religious accommodation was that she was a vegan uh, and that she couldn't take this vaccine because of it. And that, but essentially it was her de facto religion because it was essentially her worldview on life. Um, and it ultimately got processed. She ended up getting the vaccine under the pressure of being grounded, which is very unfortunate. But um, there was no, they didn't really know what to do with it, but they're like, okay, I guess so. Uh, so there's, there's definitely within the realm of, that's definitely within the realm of possibilities and the conscious based objections, uh, which might be a little closer to what you feel, uh, would also, also be considered somewhat valid, uh, in that context as well. They certainly should be. Um, and you know, it, the funny thing is I think the more you understand about these particular so-called vaccines, the more obvious it becomes that you have a fundamental right to object Right. I mean, to the extent that we were told initially that, oh, what these do is they introduce some mRNAs into your cells and your cells produce some proteins and the mRNAs get broken down pretty quickly. Right. That was bullshit. Right. Yeah. They actually modified the mRNAs with what are called pseudouridines. And while nature does this occasionally, they did it absolutely across the entire mRNA, which makes it incredibly durable. Right. This is not a natural entity at all. And my body doesn't know how to deal with it because it has no history with such a thing, right? My ability to say, you know what? That's a really dumb plan, right? I may regard you as clever for inventing it, but I know you're not ready to inject that into a human being, right? It's not ready for that. You haven't tested it in a way that will tell you how that will go wrong. And until you do, I want no part of it. That's a perfectly straightforward argument for me to make that I couldn't make at the beginning of this because the evidence that they had um, done this to the mRNAs was so thoroughly buried in the heap of garbage that they handed us, right? We had to figure out that this was going on, that their story that, oh, well, you've got lots of mRNA in your body and this is just another one and it's short-lived, that that was nonsense they wanted us to believe because it made this seem less radical than it was. So at some level, what I would say is, there are dozens of different beliefs that one might hold stretching from, you know, epistemological considerations about how the universe came into being straight to basic human biology, right? There are dozens of different beliefs that would support a rational objection to taking these things into one's body. And the idea that something has decided that it knows better than all of those objections and is therefore in a position to mandate these things in spite of the fact that, you know, I, I keep marveling at the fact the entire logic of the mandates is about the control of the pandemic. Right. But we've known for a long time these, these transfection agents are incapable of controlling the pandemic. Right. So Do the you know. argument has been backed off to, well, they you know, they reduce your chances of going to the hospital or dying, which is highly debatable. But the point is, that ain't their business. Right. That ain't their business, especially for young people who aren't in significant risk of going to the hospital or dying from COVID in the first place. And so, 
Go ahead. It's at the heart of one of our claims. Uh, you've gotten right to the the, the science of, of one of the claims in our cases, which is that they're not vaccines and that, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the right to die cases that came out of Oregon and, and uh, um, Washington. Yeah, Governor, Governor Booth Gardner, if yeah, I'm not mistaken, was integral to that fight. Right. And, and the outcome in the Supreme Court was ultimately that you could not you could not force someone to take a treatment, even if it were life saving. In other words, the Supreme Court said we don't even belong here, you know, but it, it, you cannot force someone to take a life saving treatment. And so if these these vaccines that aren't, if it turns out they're a treatment, legally speaking, that means that even if you are, even if you could show that they saved a life, and I'm with you, I, I don't believe that's been shown. In fact, I know it hasn't, but, you know, that's a different issue. But um, that you can't mandate a life-saving therapy on someone under Supreme Court precedent. So if these aren't, if these are gene therapies, then you, you're, you know, you've taken paternalism to a level now where you, the the underlying premise would be the government can controls your body and you're getting your immune system on a license agreement, you know? Yeah. And so, um, I mean, it's something that we're, we're hoping event, you know, we're, we're kind of procedurally placed to get an answer on that question, but there are, there are more than, you know, more than just those questions as well. I mean, there's, a, I'm sure you followed, you know, relative risk versus absolute risk. They broke the control group. There's been no well-controlled clinical studies. I mean, about everything that you could possibly do wrong in a clinical protocol has been done wrong with respect to these products. You know? Every way the deck could be stacked, we have discovered that it has been stacked. Yes. And yeah. yet we do not react with the kind of caution that uh, would be natural in the case that you discover, you know, this many independent uh, violations of scientific principles and law. It, it's absurd that we do not react uh, with shock and a great deal of skepticism in this context, which speaks to the... Um, the degree of power that they have over many people, um, you know, and, you know, Olivia and John, you have both described what are, I mean, I, I feel safe to say it's obvious uh, retribution that you have experienced, right. right? The whole idea is, well, if you're going to object, then we're in a position to punish you extrajudicially until you relent, which of course will cause most people not to object in the first place and will cause many people who do object to relent, which leaves only a tiny number of people, which actually in the aggregate turns out to be hundreds, um, to actually stand up and, and stick by it. But um, I've forgotten which one of you raised it a few moments ago, but um, it was the issue that this is actually functioning uh, the term vaccine is highly debatable here, but litmus test does appear to be what is taking place. And, you know, again, this this reminds me of, you know, my concern that what's really going on here is we are being marched in the direction of relinquishing the gains of Nuremberg. Right. If what we're going to do is expose the entire military to a mandate uh, to see who objects. And then we're going to see who can be coerced into relenting and throw everyone else out. What does that leave us with? That leaves us with a force that has effectively said, we will accept 
immoral orders. And then the question is what orders flow down the chain of command after that has happened? That, that, that to me is a very, very troubling question. I, I don't I don't think you have to be anything other than listen to the news, but there are certain politicians who've made it clear over and over again they're they're fantasizing about the notion of using the military against their political enemies. I mean, you know you, you don't need to be a conspiracy theorist, you just need to read Eric Swalwell's Twitter account. I mean, he's openly talked about doing that. I, never in my life did I imagine I would hear a U.S. politician. But I mean, the commander in chief has said like-minded things, and, and it—you uh, you don't have to go very far in imagining, especially in light of January sixth. And there, there seems to be a—I mean, look, the D.C.'s had barricades around it for how long now? They've—they called out the the National Guard, and I mean, we are. We are heading to, to a very, very bad place if if we don't if we don't turn things around. But y- your concerns about the military, are, I share them, and I, you know, I don't I don't have to worry about like they do. They don't. The military doesn't order me anymore. But yeah, it, it looks to me like that's exactly what this is headed towards. Is that the ultimate goal? Is that you'll have a military that will, once you bent the knee, it's really hard to stand back up and say no. Well, that's it's, well said. Um, I, I find it very. I you know I'm personally look at Joe Biden and I see a once very competent, if highly corrupt politician who is now um, so feeble that I don't really think he's in charge. But nonetheless, his recent speech in Philadelphia was uh, conspicuous in this regard, too, because what he effectively did was say, come on, can't we all be unified and go after the so-called MAGA Republicans? And as much as I'm not a MAGA Republican, never have been, don't won't become one. I was offended as an American to hear my president singling out a group of political opponents and effectively in not so well-veiled terms argue that they are not entitled to basic constitutional rights like the right to speak freely. I mean, that was the implication of his invocation of clear and present danger in that context. And so, you know, again, it's a matter of there are a lot of dots in front of us. And even those of us who are cautious about connecting them are having it an increasingly hard time avoiding the picture that is emerging before us. And it is, it is a frightening one. Yeah, for sure. Um, so before we close out here, I know there's a lot more to your story, Olivia and your story, John, that I think, uh, the dark horse audience would be, um, would be benefited by hearing. I don't know quite how to, to get you to put this in full context, but I would like both of you to think about um, what in your family histories might be relevant here, what in your experience will um, bring home to the audience of Dark Horse what is actually taking place uh, in our military so that, um, you know, so the picture is, is, is maximally fleshed out. Olivia, you want to start? Sure. Um, so... I was always told that, you know, integrity is what you do when nobody else is watching Um, and that it's, you know, incredibly hard to do the right thing. What I found throughout this process is that um, what's harder is to do the right thing when everyone is watching. To see the level of coercion and abuse and discrimination that's been levied on 
myself and my peers, and not just within the military, but all of America and frankly, the globe um, has been shocking. Uh, I think that, you know, this is something that every American citizen should consider. Perhaps you are absolutely pro-mandate today. What if you were to find yourself on the other side of a situation a my body, my choice type situation that we're dealing with right now, right? You know, I don't, I'm not comfortable getting this vaccine. Why am I being told that this is something that's going to be forced into my body? Like why, why is bodily sovereignty not protected? Um, And furthermore, you know, why is there no concern about blatant violation of constitutional rights? I keep thinking back to, I'm going to butcher the quote, but there was a, a World War II quote where, you know, it's, the government came for a certain group and I did nothing. They came for another group. I did nothing. You know, now they're coming for me and there's no one left. If we don't stand up for constitutional rights today and, you know, reach out to our congressmen as congressmen do the right thing and, you know, move forward with laws that are aligned with American values, uh, the constitution, we're going to find ourselves in a very troubling place. And I think we've seen this historically over and over and over again. Um, I just hope that everyone can you know, listen to this and consider how they can take steps to preserve our constitution, to preserve our way of life, um, to ensure that our children grow up to have the same rights like bodily sovereignty that we have had the privilege uh, to have here in America. Yeah, I think... Um that's very well said. And, and one of the things that I'm hoping will come out of this discussion is that people will recognize we have differences in this country. Absolutely. That's part of the beauty of the system is that we hash those differences out in a way that results in us navigating through time better than alternative systems. And what that means at a moment like this, when we're up against something so obviously wrong as uh the mandate of a medically radical and unjustified intervention to control a disease that for most of us is far better controlled by immunities we already have or can easily develop, that when we're up against that and when those mandates are being wielded against um, the very force that protects our way of life, um, that this isn't a moment for our minor differences to matter. They're beside the point, right? We can talk about our differences over how we are to govern ourselves and where we should be headed in the future. Once we have rescued our system from whatever this spasm of authoritarianism is, but we have to do that. And so, you know, look, I'm a, you know, not even just a liberal college professor. I'm a radical college professor sitting with members of our military um, talking about the fate of our nation, which we all believe is jeopardized by by moves like this. So I'm hoping that people will discover their own patriotism and that it will cause them to stand up in whatever role they find themselves in, whether they are members of Congress or they are members of the scientific community. There's certainly a huge number of doctors who now know that something has gone desperately wrong, who have largely been completely silent about what they are seeing. 
one's patriotism should cause you to say what you know now. And that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. There will be. But the point is the consequence for people not saying what they now understand to be true will be will be even worse. We are we are dependent. We are dependent on this system uh, to protect our liberty. And that means that, you know, college professors should be standing shoulder to shoulder with uh, our our men and women in uniform against these um, absurd and dangerous mandates. John, did you want to uh, talk about more related to your experience? Sure. So I'll go back all the way to, to my childhood real quick. And when I was a kid, uh, my family was very fortunate to, uh, we actually full-time RV'd and traveled the country um, in an RV for like five years. Uh, and so, you know, I've seen the sunrise over Yosemite and I saw the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico. And I played in the cornfields of Kansas and I ate a Philly cheesesteak and checked out the Liberty Bell. And I, I did all of those things without a single worry about my freedom, my ability to be who I wanted to be, or, or worried about uh, invasion or death or concentration camps or anything of the sort that so many people in this world are so unfortunate to experience. And I developed a love for this country. I, I, I love this country. I love what it stands for. I love the fairness that you talked about. Uh, and, and, and for my entire life, I, I, I partook in that. The flag behind me is from being an Eagle Scout, where I learned about the values of America. And so, so with all that, it's this desire to stand up over this vaccine is not because I'm a fringe right-wing extremist or a conspiracy theorist or some sort of religious radical. I'm just a normal American guy who loves his country and, and wants to do cool things like fly jets and, and, and defend my nation that way. And it's fun. It's, it's a passion of mine. And so, so many service members are, are just like me. In fact, I'd say all of them are just like me. And that we're not we're not crazy people. We're we're just we're just here to stand up for what we believe in, and we're here to represent the very values that were instilled in us from this great nation. Uh, and so, I would encourage the American people to, to keep that frame of mind when, when they think about us, and that we're, we're not we, we've been vilified to a large degree by by our own government, which is extremely unfortunate, and, and by our media. And uh, we're just here to do the right thing, and that's all we care about. That's. That's really what we want to do is, is do what's right and, and do what we believe, whether that's founded in Christian beliefs or whether it's veganism. And that's the beauty of this country is that there's a diversity of opinion and thought. And we're allowed to express that and share it. And, and we're here to defend it as military members. Uh, and so, you know, we're kind of the boots on the ground in this fight as, as unvaccinated service members, all 80,000 of us. And, uh, you know, maybe legal and lawsuits are going to be what takes the hill for this for us. But at the very least, Congress can be our air cover and the American people can be our air cover. You guys can share our story. You guys can even just tweeting about it. I would ask representatives, just tweet about it. It's, it's that easy um, to provide us some top cover and help change the narrative a little bit about who we are as people. So we can stop being villains and, and start being just everyday Americans who are standing up for what we believe in. Uh, and that's really what I'm most passionate about and why I'm sitting here in front of this camera talking about it is because uh, the, the narrative needs to change drastically if we're ever going to see any change. And it starts in the military and it spreads across our entire country to the, the rights of even the viewers of this show. Um, so that's, that's my plea to everybody, to Congress and the American people is just share our story and think about us. And if you're a praying person, pray for us. And if you're not, then maybe just think about us. But uh, that's what we're here to do, and that's our mission. And we're not going to stop until, until until we win this fight, and we're set in it. Uh, and that's not to say we're obstinate, but simply just to mean that that we believe 
and we stand firmly in what we believe. I'm obstinate. I'll say it. I am. <laughs> well, you're a lawyer. It's kind of your job. Um, yeah, that's beautifully said, John. And I will say, um, you know, this isn't my first fight. And one of the things that each of the fights I've been involved in has taught me is that you are often led to believe that there's some ununderstandable um, group on the other side. And you really have an obligation to sit down with those folks and see whether what you've been told is true. And what I keep finding out is, no, actually, um, the people I've been told are a threat to the country, um, have a different perspective often. They often have something to teach me that I don't know, something that I missed from the perspective that I arrived with. And in any case, um, this has been a great conversation in the sense that I think it does. It absolutely reveals your humanity. And I think it's going to be hard for anybody to look at this and uh, portray you as villains or, uh, you know, crazy religious fanatics or any of the things that are used to get people. And this is key to get people not to listen to what you're saying, because that's how they do it. Right. They get people not to listen, to judge before. And this is the basis of the word prejudice. Right. To prejudge. They get you to prejudge somebody so you won't hear what they have to say. And then you'll believe, oh, that these people actually don't care that, you know, their resistance to these so-called vaccines uh, is causing other people to die. No, that's not at all what's going on here. These are people who believe this is the right choice, uh, both personally and medically, and that it is completely consistent with their love of their country and their oath to defend the Constitution. And, you know how can anybody look at that and be indifferent, right? We, we have an obligation to each other is basically the point. And um, you all, uh, through your military service, are very directly um, addressing your sense of obligation uh, to the nation. And others of us in other roles are doing it in different ways. But really what we need to do is we all need to stand up because... Um, there are many signs we are in a very, a very dangerous place. So okay. I thank you all for joining me on Dark Horse. I thank everybody who uh, is watching this for hearing it through. And I look forward to hearing the discussion that I know that it is going to set in motion. Is there anything any of the three of you uh, would like to say in closing? Just thank you for your time. This has been fantastic and a wonderful opportunity to engage you and your audience. Thank you. Yeah, um, thank you. I appreciate that. You don't need to thank me. I I, uh, I actually really do feel uh, a sense of honor and privilege that you have uh, trusted uh, me with this discussion, and I hope that it catches the attention of people. Um, who will not be able to stand being silent anymore and will stand up and defend you. Thank you, Brett. Bruh. All right. Thanks to all of you, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. See ya.